This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So at this point in time, I'm going to call on a variety of different panel members um, to go through a case presentation uh, of a patient with recurrent prostate cancer. And, and today I'm joined by uh, Dr. Osama Mohammed, who uh, presented earlier, Dr. Hao Nguyen, who presented in an earlier session, uh, and, and Peter Carroll uh, and, and Eric Small, who also uh, presented earlier as well. And thank you, uh, Osama, Hao, uh, Peter, and Eric uh, for joining. And so what I'm going to do is uh, I am going to share a case that will take us through different recurrent settings, but we're also going to pause in between and answer the questions um, from the audience. So this case that I'm going to present to you today is from a 63-year-old man uh, who had no other major medical issues except for his diagnosis of prostate cancer. And he was found to have a PSA of 11, uh, and he underwent biopsy of the prostate showing several areas positive uh, for Gleason 3 plus 4 prostate cancer. His imaging scans were negative for metastatic disease, and he underwent a radical prostatectomy to remove his prostate. And he did well. Um, uh, the analysis of his surgical sample by a pathologist showed that he actually had a little bit higher Gleason score than previously thought. He had Gleason 4 plus 3 prostate cancer. Um, he had uh, characteristics called extracapsular extension and seminal vesicle lesion, which means that the prostate uh, extended outside of the capsule of the prostate. So the the prostate is like a walnut with a shell around it, and sometimes the cancer eats through the shell, and that leads to extra capsular extension and seminal vesicle invasion. He had negative surgical margins, meaning that the surgeon got around the entire cancer when he removed it. Um, and he had eight lymph, node, uh, eight lymph nodes that were sampled, all of which were negative for cancer. Um, three months after surgery, he was using one pad a day. One, uh, and mostly, he had a bit of urinary leakage that occurred with coughing or sneezing and his PSA remained undetectable. Um, and so a couple of questions for our panel here. I'm gonna call first on uh, Dr. Carroll. Um, Dr. Carroll, would you recommend ultra-sensitive PSA testing for your patients after surgery? So we do, the, the, the benefit to, to ultra-sensitive PSA testing is really in men with high-risk disease. That, that's where I think it's most predictive. And I think there was a question on the chat here about that. So I do recommend ultrasensitive PSA testing. I also want to point out in this case that you showed this patient underwent surgery, had eight lymph nodes removed. And that is a tiny number of lymph nodes. Just goes to show that, in fact, most lymphadenectomies done uh, in, in this country are really not accurate and not well done. Even us, at, well, our average is around 20. Even that, I'm not sure, is what we need to have to show. but. Um, but yeah, I do. I do ultrasensitive PSA testing. It's a, it has a, it's a strong predictor of the future, certainly for very high risk disease. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. So the next question will be for Dr. Mohammed. Dr. Mohammed, do you recommend adjuvant radiation now? And again, adjuvant radiation is radiation when the PSA is still undetectable. Uh, Dr. Mohammed, I think you're muted still. Sorry, sorry about that. Uh, Dr. Feng, do you mind just uh, scrolling back one slide just uh, to see? Uh, okay, so th for this case, I would 
probably not recommend adjuvant radiation for this case, although this is a little bit debatable. However, this is the rationale. The studies have shown, the three studies that I told you about recently, have shown that in general, patients with undetectable PSA after surgery do not benefit from adjuvant radiation. However, these studies did not have patients who have lymph node involvement, and these studies did not have a lot of patients. Only 13 to maybe 15% had cancer in the seminal vesicle. So we believe that patients who have multiple risk factors like extra capsular extension and seminal vesicles and maybe Gleason 8 may benefit from adjuvant radiation, but there is no evidence for that. So at this point, given the lack of evidence, uh, I would not recommend adjuvant radiation. This patients could be followed until their PSA is detectable. And I really believe that there will be no difference in outcomes. Although I do understand that some radiation oncologists may feel otherwise about this question. Yes, and I'd also like to highlight the work from uh, uh, Dr. Carroll and the um, prostate cancer research team here at UCSF. That's actually where they've actually shown that um, a lot of patients um, who have surgery who even if they have a small PSA recurrence, they actually do quite well in the long term uh, without um, additional therapy. Um, so then uh, the next question I'm going to ask is to Dr. Nguyen. Dr. Nguyen, um, do you think that genomic testing would be useful for decision-making uh, you know, uh, at this point? Or would you order uh, some genomic test after a prostatectomy? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, in this case, the, the only adverse uh, feature is uh, seminal uh, vascular invasion and extra capsule extension. His Gleason score is, is, is on a favorable side. So to, to, you know, to discuss whether he needs adjuvant uh, versus uh, follow the PSA, I think genomic testing may be useful in this case to decide that. And, and I think we, we have some good genomic testing at our disposal to do. Uh, Perfect. Um, and so this patient ended up getting a Decipher score, um, and we've talked a lot about Decipher. Uh, Decipher is a genomic classifier that gives an indication of aggressiveness of, uh, of prostate cancer. It measures the risk of uh, a patient developing metastasis five years later. Um, and in this patient's case, he had a Decipher score of 0.69, which was in the high risk space uh, for Decipher. Um, and so uh, um, and I guess I'll, I'll make a point. And so a number of years ago, we published a study looking at uh, patients with high decipher score, and we matched them based on those that had gotten adjuvant radiation therapy, meaning radiation where the PSA was undetectable versus salvage radiation, which is radiation when the PSA is detectable and going up. Um, and we show that patients with a high decipher score might actually benefit from adjuvant radiation kind of earlier um, initiation of radiation. And based on that, we discussed adjuvant radiation therapy with him, but ultimately... Can I, uh, can I make a quick comment for you? Yes, uh, Dr. Small, please. Um, so I, I think it's really important to understand that an association is really important. I totally agree. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's causal, right? So we don't know that high decipher score patients will do better with radiation. We assume so. Uh, that requires a randomized clinical trial, which you're, you've designed. Um, uh, so I think, I think people should use decipher as a, as a guide 
but not an absolute uh, indication. And the second comment I want to make about the cipher, which Dr. Muhammad made, is you know, there's high and there's high. So there's a decipher score of 0.69 and a decipher score of 0.99. And we don't really know if those are really different, but one assumes that they probably are. So. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree with your points. And actually, um, even if he had a high decipher score, um, again, uh, I think in this case, we uh, I, actually, I don't think I saw this particular patient, but I think the treating physician walked him through the pros and cons, and he ultimately against uh, decided against treatment. And I think that was a perfectly reasonable choice at that point in time. Um, again, you're correct that just because they have a high decipher score, it doesn't mean more intensification of therapy might help at that point in time. Um, but uh, uh, this patient returned one year later, and at that point in time, his PSA was 0 0.19. And so um, I wanted to kind of talk about the role of imaging in the context of biochemical recurrence. And we heard a great talk from Dr. Hope. Um, but, you know, Dr. Carroll, can you kind of walk us through what your thoughts are about MRI, transrectal ultrasound, PET imaging uh, in, in a case of biochemical recurrence? Yes, I, I also want to point out in this case, he had high risk features and negative margin, and they're actually predictive nomograms you can, you can use to predict response to adjuvant radiation therapy. This patient is not likely to be recurring locally, it's regional. Uh, and in fact, when we talk about uh, salvage radiation or adjuvant radiation, we're talking about radiation of the prostate bed and, and regional lymph nodes. In this patient, he is most likely to recur regionally and not locally. And, and Muhammad, uh, Dr. Muhammad and I have been talking for a long time now about whether or not you include the prostate bed, which is the side of the side effects we see or regional disease. So I think this patient made the right decision because I think now we have an opportunity to find out where his disease is. Now, one thing I would do, I like to do is repeat the PSA within two months, just to get some idea about PSA kinetics because that, that helps me a bit. But our policy at UCSF is to do both uh, PET imaging uh, and an ultrasound. And the reason we do an ultrasound at UCSF is because, remember, when the PSMA is excreted, it's excreted in the bladder. And so you get a high, uh, a high level of activity in the bladder. And I think it could, you can miss, and we've seen this, local recurrence. So what we do is we do, and this patient, I think they're recurring, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but I think they're recurring regionally we get a PSMA PET usually between 0 0.15, 0 0.2, could be 0.3, could be 0.4, who knows? But I go to PSMA PET testing, get that. And if that were negative, I'd also do an, an ultrasound. Again, this is a UCSF ultrasound. Uh, I would do both. And generally, 0.2 is where we start thinking about PSMA PET. So Dr. Carroll is correct. In this case, we got all three forms of imaging. The PSMA PET did not show any evidence of local regional distant disease, and the MRI and the ultrasound did not show any evidence of local disease either. Um, and, and so uh, at this point in time, um, uh, I'm going to ask a, a few questions. And, and so the first question will be um, kind of to Dr. Mohammed. Uh, asking about radiation. So in, in, in which in patients receiving salvage radiation, who do, uh, when do you recommend radiation to the prostate bed, uh, meaning the surgical area? And when do you recommend radiation to the lymph nodes? And this, I think, uh, Dr. Carroll uh, actually has already touched upon. Um, but Dr. Mohammed? Yeah. So this patient has a PSA at this moment of 0.2, and he ha they had seminal vesicle invasion and extracapsular extension. The most recent study 
there are like three studies which guide the treatment in this case. And again, I'm assuming that his PSA is continuously increasing. Uh, so there are three studies, there two from the US and one from France. And these studies have uh, showed that in patients who have increasing PSA after radical prostatectomy, and the PSA is above 0.1 or 0.2, that salvage radiation is a potential curative option and uh, adding hormonal therapy for six months could improve outcomes. So especially if someone uh, ha- if someone who has PSA 0.2 or higher or around 0.2 and high risk decipher, I would definitely su- suggest hormonal therapy in this case uh, to improve the outcomes of the treatment. Irradiating the lymph nodes here is still debatable. Um, It's unclear whether adding lymph node radiation in this case is helpful, but generally speaking, when we compare lymph node radiation versus prostate bed-only radiation, adding the lymph node, it does not increase the toxicity by much. And as as Dr. Carroll suggested, the most of the side effects from the treatment, which are the urinary side effects, are related to treat, uh, irradiating the prostate bed. And adding lymph node radiation increases the side effects just a little bit, not significantly, and has been shown recently in a, in a very large randomized study from the U.S. to decrease the chance of recurrence. Right. Uh, well said. Um, Dr. Small, do you have any other perspectives on the hormone therapy? No, I, I, I think uh, what Dr. Mohammed has said is absolutely right. You, <clears throat> you, uh, the decision to use hormonal therapy is dependent on risk. Um, and so in, in enough said. <laughs> Perfect. So, just make- Okay, well, you, you, here's, my, here's my comment. I'm unsure about such patients. We know, uh, based on the work done at UCSF, and again, we did two of the trials that, that uh, Tom Hope uh, mentioned, local recurrence in these patients is uncommon. It's usually regional disease. We know that about uh, 30 to 40% of these nodes may be outside the field for uh, radiation. So in these patients, I never know whether it's best just to give them the radiation now or to follow them. Now, we're following them now with, not, not like we did five, 10 years ago, we're following them now with PSMA PET. So on this patient, I would have wondered, well, do, do we radiate him now? Do we, the prostate bed, regional nodes, hormonal therapy, or do we watch him carefully, find out where his disease is, and, and, and treat them then? And I think this would be a great randomized trial of PSMA-directed therapy versus upfront radiation to prostate and regional lymph nodes. To me, I just don't know anymore. Because I think you, this is what I would have predicted. So, well, you you predicted correctly uh, w- with one caveat. So, this is going to be the very rare patient that, in addition, that that, that might have had a local recurrence in addition to everything else. But I'll, I'll show you. So, this patient uh, was offered salvage radiation with a short course of androgen deprivation therapy, um, but he ultimately decided against treatment. Um, and then uh, he's not from uh, the Bay Area. And so he returned two years later with a PSA of 2.1 at that point. Um, and he was restaged at that point. And the ultrasound of the prostate bed uh, showed, oh, I'm sorry. I uh, actually, the, so the ultrasound showed no evidence of recurrence. Um, a CT scan, uh, and this was an ultrasound at outside hospital. Peter, it wasn't one of yours. Uh, um, a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis showed an enlarged left iliac lymph node. A bone scan showed no metastasis, 
and a PSMA PET showed focal uptake within the prostate bed. It also showed this left iliac node with increased uptake and also focal uptake in the third rib suspicious uh, for bone metastasis. And so, um, uh, so Dr. Um, Mohammed, you know, in terms of discordance between bone scan, PSMA PET, you know, CT scan, ultrasound, is this something that we see frequently or not? Uh, we do see frequently a discordance between uh, conventional imaging, which are CT and bone scan, and PET-PSMA. PET-PSMA has increased uh, accuracy in, detect in detecting um, uh, disease outside the prostate or the prostate bed in the lymph nodes or in the bones. Great. Um, and so, um, so uh, you know, what would we recommend at this point in time? And so, he has uh, three areas of, of disease. Um, and, and again, I, I concur with Dr. Carroll that it, it, was, it was actually improbable that he would have a prostate bed recurrence, but this particular patient did. Um, so he has disease in a small area of disease in his prostate bed, also one in the pelvic lymph nodes, and also a, a spot that's positive on PSMA PET in his left third rib. Um, and so... Dr. Carroll, you're not the radiation oncologist, but you always say that you have a secondary degree in radiation oncology. And so what would you radiate in a setting? Well, uh, um, this patient, I would refer to obviously radiation oncology and the medical oncology. And, and, you know, I think over the last 20 years, I realized that prostate cancer truly is a spectrum of disease. And some people may have limited metastatic disease and not widespread disease. So I think this is a perfect candidate, in my opinion, Fragmented hormonal therapy, radiation to the prostate bed, lymph nodes, and third rib. Okay, and so um, I will come back to the hormone therapy part and defer to Dr. Small here, but this patient was treated with intensely modular radiation therapy to the prostate bed, uh, to the pelvic lymph nodes, and he also got stereotactic body radiation therapy uh, to the third rib uh, in combination with androgen deprivation therapy. And, and, and Dr. Small, um, in terms of androgen deprivation therapy, what would you recommend for this patient? So um, the first thing I want to comment on is the rib lesion, because uh, Dr. Hope in his talk described that there's a lot of false positives in ribs, and that's true, uh, but there's also, uh, you know, the reading that you shed us is a high probability, and so there's features of what a rib looks like. So I don't uh, that, that suggests that there might be cancer there. So I don't want the, the interpretation to be that we ignore rib lesions. Uh, and, and, and in fact, in this case, it was likely that the rib was involved. So when I think about the, the androgen, the hormonal therapy, the androgen deprivation therapy that we're going to use, I think about bookends because we don't have any clinical trials specifically in this setting yet. Um, that there's an important one underway that you're, you're leading or have developed. Um, but the bookends that I think of are, we know that in men, which you'll be hearing about later today with, in Dr. Agarwal's section, that men with widely metastatic prostate cancer identified by conventional imaging, not on, on PSMA PET, that the standard of care for those, as we talked about this morning, is intensified ADT. So androgen deprivation therapy plus one of these androgen signaling inhibitors. At UCSF, we use abiraterone first, simply because going from abiraterone to enzalutamide works better than the converse. But if this patient had widely metastatic disease, the standard of care would be 
indefinite, lifelong, Lupron plus Abiraterone. The other bookend is if this guy, if this patient were getting salvage radiation to the pelvis based on a climbing PSA and no PSA imaging, we would probably end up recommending six months of Lupron alone because there is a clinical trial, it's been faulted, but a clinical trial that shows that six months is better than nothing. So the truth of the matter for this patient is somewhere between six months of Lupron alone and lifelong ADT and abiraterone. That's a big, big, broad band. The way, we, the way we hone down is that we then look at some of the data that you cited, which is the stampede data, which shows that in men with high-risk primary disease are getting frontline radiation, um, that two years of intensified ADT is better than two years with just Lupron. And so depending on the extent of disease here, one could go with patients who we felt were very low risk. So typically I would say that's one lymph node only from as little as six months of ADT to someone who now is beginning to have bone metastases more than one spot. We would try to do two years of androgen deprivation therapy, which is intensified by abiraterone, acknowledging that there are no clinical trials to support it. It is extrapolation as I've described. Thanks, uh, Dr. Small. And so um, that's actually uh, the end of this particular case. What I want to point out is that oligometastatic prostate cancer, you know, is, is complicated. It's a new emerging disease space. And what I think is important is to, is for these patients to be discussed at a multidisciplinary tumor board. And, you know, this is something that we at UCSF do very regularly. Once a week, we meet and talk about kind of complicated cases and we have representation from urology and medical oncology and radiation oncology there. And this, that would be the forum to kind of discuss the, kind of the complexities of this case and kind of multidisciplinary care. I also want to point out that uh, as, as both Dr. Carroll and Dr. Small have alluded to, the spectrum of oligometastatic disease um, is pretty wide in the sense that you have patients who will do very well with limited therapies in that space. And you'll also have patients who will have disease that will progress uh, quite quickly as well. And so, um, you know, we as a field are striving to do a better job in this space about identifying the former from the latter and therefore being able to better tailor care. So I'd like to thank our panelists. I'd like to thank our speakers. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.